Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? I'll be your host tonight. My name is Josh Herring. I am the Dean of Students for Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. I am joined by my co-host, Ethan. Hello, everyone. And uh, uh, tonight we are going to have a uh, hopefully a great conversation with our guest about the November-December resolution for Lincoln-Douglas debate. Uh, our guest tonight is uh, Dr. Mark Paul. He is the Assistant Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at New College of Florida and a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, Dr. Paul is an expert on the federal jobs guarantee, and uh, he's going to share with us some of that expertise tonight. So, Dr. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. What's the res? Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your academic journey. I was looking at your uh, your uh, profile on the New College of Florida's website, and uh, it looks like you do a lot of things, economics, environmental studies, interdisciplinary programs, and social sciences. So tell us a little about you and what your interests are. Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I had a fairly roundabout way uh, to moving into academia. You know, a lot of people go straight from undergrad to graduate school, to professor life, and just, you know, kind of never, never leave the school system. But I actually uh, started out in culinary school of all places, and went and worked as a chef for a couple of years. And, you know, my, my passion as a little kid was always food. And, you know, I, I never, never quite got the chance to, to cook a lot, or to be that engaged in the food system when I was young. And then once I once I became a teenager and could drive, I started doing all the grocery shopping and all the cooking for my family and just became addicted. And, you know, really, I was never interested in economics until I started working in kitchens. Um, and kitchens really brought a couple of interesting things into, into preview for me. One is, is just pretty significant economic inequality. I was working in restaurants where I myself could not have afforded to, to eat during my time off. Most of the people I was working with in the kitchen couldn't have afforded to eat. And we were, you know, feeding, a, a, in general, feeding a, a group of people that um, we wouldn't necessarily associate with outside of, of that setting. Um, and that really got me interested in inequality. And then the second thing that happened is I started gardening and growing my own food. And I got really interested in the environment and the food system and realizing you know, how troubled the food system is in terms of environmental sustainability and, and as well as in terms of worker justice. I told myself I'd go back to school for an economics degree and then go back into the food world. And uh, next thing I knew, I ended up getting a PhD and simply never, never turned back. And here we are, you know, uh, 10 years later. That has got to be like the top five coolest intro stories we've ever had on the show. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's really important when people kind of get a fire lit under them from the real world experiences rather than just, just from the books. What's your favorite dish to prepare? It's a really hard question. Classically, my answer is beef bourguignon. I am a huge Julia Child fan. Um, however, the past year, my my partner and I have gone largely vegetarian for for a number of different reasons, mainly climate reasons and, and animal welfare reasons. So I'm going to have to come up with a, a new favorite dish. Um, but the the favorite dessert might be an easier one, which is is creme brulee. Hard to hard mm. to get away from the French classics. Mm. Awesome. So uh, well, Mark, give us a a quick plug for New College of Florida. I'm I'm new to the college advising game for my school, and I don't know New College of Florida. So uh, help us know a little bit about your school. 
You know, New College of Florida is an absolutely wonderful, unique little place. It's small, uh, just under a thousand students. It is a public honors liberal arts school in Florida. We're located in Sarasota, Florida, uh, just south of Tampa on, on the Gulf. Um, the school is located right on the bay. So, you know, students spend a great portion of their day picnicking or studying, reading books, just sitting out on the bay. You see manatees and dolphins all the time. Um, and it's a, it, it's a really special, quirky place. We don't have grades. It is an honors college. So every student, for instance, writes a thesis. Um, and we are known for sending um, the highest percentage of students onto graduate school. Out of, out of schools across the country. Um, you know, we're, we're a place where we tend to attract students that are uh, a little bit free-spirited, that are a little on the intellectual side and really want to come and, and challenge themselves. And also, as I encourage all my students to do, is challenge their professors too. They're there to learn with me. Uh, I'm certainly there to, to help teach them and help guide them in their, their intellectual journey. But, you know, the goal is to, to have students that are interested in thinking critically and engaging in the big questions that, that should fascinate all of us and, and to help them <clears throat> work through those together. Um, so it's a, it's a great little place. Um, and, you know, it's primarily liberal arts focused, but of course we have a fantastic natural science program, particularly one that focuses on marine biology, given our location. Um, and it's a, it's a place that, you know, really encourages students that um to, to accept kind of a little bit of a nerdy side of themselves and some in some schools you know that that's you know can sometimes be frowned upon and i think this is a it's a really great safe place for students to express themselves find themselves um and and, and ask just important questions um it is a public school which is uh really spectacular though because it's only a 10 we maintain a 10 to 1 student teacher ratio um, which is unbelievable. Most of my classes are about 15 students. Um, but at the same time, it's incredibly affordable. Uh, in-state tuition is just about $8,000. I can't quote you out-of-state tuition off the top of my head, but it's shockingly affordable. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the other nice things that our students do is that they all, as a graduation requirement, have to take independent study projects with their professors. And not only does that provide for some fantastic one-on-one -on -one time between student and professor, but it also, you know, kind of puts a puts a little bit of, um, uh, you know, gives the students an opportunity to sit back and think about, you know, what do I want to spend uh, my semester thinking about, and makes them be a little bit more self-guided and self-directed. Which, which I think is a, a really important opportunity to serve them, not only as citizens, but also, you know, when they go out into the workforce to be a little bit more independent and used to not always, you know, fully having their hand held and just, okay, you read this chapter in the textbook and you take this multiple choice exam and that's learning. I used to teach um, at a large public school and I would have sometimes 700 students in my class. I'd have 350 would come on Monday, the other 350 would stay at home and watch the video lecture. And they'd switch on Wednesday. Um, and I would always refer to that, given my background, as the factory factory farming of education, you know, um, and, or the fast food of education. And, and where we are in New College, we really get to kind of help individuals curate their own their own education um, in a way that I think is is really special. What do you tell me a little bit about the the no grades part? Because I know that out west there's Reed College, which also has no grades. It's the one other one that I've heard of. Uh, what is 
it look like to sort of engage with a student when I can't, I can't even really say where they've like, like maybe if they write a paper or something, instead of just giving them a grade and marking it up, what do you sit down with them and discuss like better writing strategies or what is it being someone who's taught in a public school with grades, I'm assuming, what's it like to teach in a public school without grades? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I came out through the public school system, K through PhD. I'm a public school kid and I'm a, a, a deep believer in, in public education. Um, my my experience at New College was uh, a steep learning curve at first. And then I realized how beautiful it is to be freed from this traditional ABC framework. Uh, so there's a, you know, a number of different schools across the country. Reed is probably the best known. Um, there's also Hampshire College, where I am right now up in Western Massachusetts and New College of Florida that all have chosen to opt for um, no grades. And instead, what we do is we do written evaluations for our students. So a student does a, you know, takes a test or hands in a paper. Our, sometimes our students have tests. Um, those tests might include even a, you know, a small portion of that might even be multiple choice, right? Um, but, and, and so things, you know, they get things right, they get things wrong. Uh, and when I hand that back to the student, I'll have written extensive comments on their papers or on their exams and provide them with feedback. You know, OK, you did about average. You did, you know, exceptionally well on this or tell them, you know, look, you really need to go back and do some corrections or rewrite a draft and, and take another step at this assignment. Um, and and, and the cul to culminate the semester, we write them, you know, fairly lengthy written evaluations, usually one to two pages where we talk about the student's experience and can really tailor it to the student. Um, talk about how much they've grown in the class, how much, you know, how much work we felt that they put in and, and you know, whether or not they have truly mastered uh, the course subject and, and things to that effect. But, um, you know, one of the advantages of having small class sizes is we get to know our students fairly intimately and get to understand how they think and also how they develop over the course of the semester and can provide them with more meaningful um, feedback. Because what does an A or B really mean at the end of the day, right? Um, and, and I think that the traditional system is just overly restrictive and it also makes students focus on these artificial numbers, you know, and, and pr really provides a, a great deal of anxiety. I mean, if you look at the number one mental health um, illness in America right now, over 40 million Americans suffer from anxiety. And I think just stripping away these these numbers and these grades is a great way to get students to think about actually learning rather than to fixate on a on a number. And how do I get that? that A, or else I'm not going to get into law school or I'm not going to get into medical school. And what was the name of the school that you said you're at now? Could you tell me? It was Hampshire uh, College? Uh, I'm just visiting Western Mass right now, and Hampshire College okay. is located in Western Mass. Okay, um, cool. And they're I'll another one. Yeah, so Hampshire College and Reed College are, are both private liberal arts schools, whereas New College is a public liberal arts school. Big awesome. advantage to the public is obviously it's it's much cheaper and more affordable and um, yeah, part, part of where New College is part of the University of Florida system. Well, on that note, uh, with a very uh, probably non-existent transition, we're going to let, let's shift into uh, discussing our, our uh, to topic for this evening. Uh, the Lincoln-Douglas resolution for November and December uh, is that the United States ought to provide a federal jobs guarantee. Uh, Mark, I, I, I'm so glad you were willing to answer an email because I, I felt like one of those kind of shots in the dark. You never quite know if anyone's actually going to respond to this sort of email. But as I was initially reading up on the topic, I kept running into your name either as an article you had written or uh, you were part of a team of writers that put together a study or a paper or a chapter 
Uh, and it seems that this is an area of expertise for, for you and a long-term area of interest. Uh, so I'm so grateful that you're willing to bring that uh, to help our debaters get ready for debating this topic. Uh, so I figure we should start with some basics. Uh, walk us through kind of what exactly is a federal jobs guarantee? Yeah, so I, I'm thrilled to hear that um, the Lincoln-Douglas Lincoln topic is focusing on the job guarantee uh, over these next two months. I think it is a vital issue that um, far too few Americans are familiar with, particularly because it has a very rich tradition right here in American history. So at its most basic level, the idea of a job guarantee is simply that every person living in this country should have the right to a job at non-poverty wages if they wish to work. You know, you hear a lot of um, conservatives, for instance, um, you know, kind of attack people who are poor or uh, living in poverty and say, you know, if only they worked harder, if only they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. My question is, what do you say to those roughly 25 million Americans right now who are unemployed or underemployed? They're out there looking for jobs. The definition of unemployed, according to the U.S. government, is that somebody who's actively applying for a job, they're trying to find work. The problem is, is our economy does not provide enough work for everybody who's willing and able to work. So in economics, we can think about this as you know, some form of what would be called a market failure. But, you know, to, to put it in, in more simple terms, we have a, a pretty vital breakdown in our society where it's true that, you know, the vast majority of Americans acquire their livelihoods. They pay their rent. They put food on the table. They get health insurance. They get all of these things through having a job. But there just aren't enough jobs out there to meet the number of people looking for jobs. So. What a job guarantee is, it's a promise from the United States government that they will provide a job to anybody who is willing and able to work at non-poverty wages. What this essentially does is it puts a floor in the labor market and just says, okay, if you go out and you apply for jobs, you can't find one, we're willing to give you one, we're going to pay you a decent wage, we're going to give you health insurance, we're going to give you paid vacation and uh, family and sick time and just the basic rights to live a dignified life. Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that we all have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And all this does, a job guarantee does is try to actually live up to those ideals that the founders uh, put forth when, when fighting for this nation. Uh, we can get into the history um, if you're interested, but you know it's it's something that I think is is really important because you know a lot of folks saw candidates like Bernie Sanders during the Democratic primary talk a lot about Finland or Norway or Sweden um, or other countries that might be traditionally thought of as socialists. But we actually don't have to look to these other countries to, to um, find a, a rich history of a job guarantee. We can actually look to our own history. Uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually first proposed the idea of a job guarantee back in 1944. And it was, uh, in fact, we've actually past multiple pieces of legislation that have tried to get into the idea of a job guarantee, uh, which we can perhaps get into more later in the discussion. Um, the, the final thing I'll note is, um, you know, more, more recently, the job guarantee became a central pillar of the civil rights movement, something that is, you know, really often left off the table. Um, but it has a very important history, uh, uh, you know, both from, from activists and from civil rights leaders 
as you know, we as they recognize that political rights, the right to vote, um, or defense of our our traditional freedoms that we think about in the United States, free speech, free press, um, freedom to travel, those freedoms aren't sufficient to providing true freedom. In order to provide true freedom, you need basic necessities met. And how do we tend to meet those basic necessities? It's a job. Go, go into a little bit more detail about the civil rights connection on that. I remember I was looking at one of your articles earlier, uh, the, the federal jobs guarantee a policy to achieve permanent full employment. And I don't know if you were the primary author on that or, or one of several, but there's a citation in there that looked to Martin Luther King Jr. as really wanting to close the gap between Black American unemployment and white American employment. And t- take us back to some of that part of, of this story. I think that would be a very helpful uh, piece of the of this history for us to kind of for you to help us with. Yeah. Um, so Martin Luther King and his earlier career really focused on civil rights. That's what we know him as an icon for today. Um, he was involved in the Montgomery bus boycotts. He was involved um, in multiple, um, you know, uh, sit-in movements. Um, he was certainly uh, one, of, one of the main architects for pushing for the Civil Rights Act, um, which Johnson signed into law. Um, but, but King came along to a realization that these civil rights that, they are, that, that the African-American community was fighting for under the Jim Crow apartheid South um, wouldn't actually provide them with equality of outcome. Okay? When, you know, to, to give you an example, um, today, on average, black people in the United States suffer unemployment rates that are roughly twice as high as white people. And a lot of people will then say, oh, well, that's because they didn't get the right college degree. Well, in fact, we can look at um, people who just have college degrees. And what do we see? We see black people with college degrees have roughly twice as high an unemployment rate as white people with college degrees. And then they can say, well, maybe they didn't get the right type of degree or go to the right school. Well, we can look at, okay, well, how about STEM majors, science majors that went to highly selective colleges? And we see that amongst those groups, black people still tend to have an unemployment rate twice as high as white people. What does that break down to? That breaks down to what we call structural racism. King realized this way back in the 60s. And he um, was, was, you know, enlightened enough to see that the civil rights that he was spending his life fighting for didn't actually lead to the freedom that he had hoped for. Um, King, uh, a, a speech that I really love from, I'm sorry, a quote that I really love from him from a letter of a Birmingham jail when, when he was in prison was, we will reach the goal of freedom because the goal of freedom is America. Um, but what King came to realize later on in life is that economic rights, the right to a job, the right to housing, basic necessities being met are absolutely essential for us to live a life um, of liberty and happiness. And so King actually pivoted um, during, particularly starting during 1966, to fight for economic rights. Now, I say pivoted in 66, that became his main focus, but that was a focus of his earlier People always talk about the 1963 uh, March on Washington. Do either of you know the full title of that that march by chance? It was the the March on Washington for Jobs and Justice. The central demand of the March on Washington was jobs, was full employment. 
that was always at the center, but it's a history that we've decided not to tell anymore, which I find very troubling. I think it's a, a really important history to teach in our classrooms. Now, after they won passage of the Civil Rights Act, King and uh, two other civil rights icons, Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph, um, pivoted to writing something called the Freedom Budget. And they presented this to President Johnson at the White House during a ma major conference at the White House in 1966. And at that time, what they did is they said the, the federal budget is really what dictates our nation's priorities. It says where we dedicate our resources. Do we build more schools? Do we provide social security to keep the elderly out of poverty? Do we provide Medicaid and Medicare to ensure that our most vulnerable populations have health insurance? You know, what is it that we want to spend our resources on collectively as a society? And what, what um, these three individuals did was write a budget to abolish poverty and provide full employment within 10 years. That's what they thought was the cornerstone of actually fulfilling the civil rights movement. Unfortunately, as King was starting to focus more and more on economic rights, um, at that time, King, King was assassinated in 1968, just as he was putting his full effort behind the Poor People's Campaign, a campaign we often forget and a campaign now um, centered in North Carolina under, under Reverend um, William Barber, as a matter of fact. Um, but that campaign took up the notion of a freedom budget, which included a job guarantee and the abolishment of poverty in the United States. And that's, that's kind of the deep connection with civil rights. It, it culminated in 1978 when we passed something called the Humphrey Hawkins Act. Now, most people haven't heard of that, but what they have heard of is what the, the Federal Reserve, which is the, the central bank of the United States, has what's called a dual mandate. The two mandates of the Federal Reserve are price stability, meaning controlling inflation, and full employment. Well, where did that second mandate of full employment come from? That second mandate of full employment came from the 1978 Humphrey Hawkins bill which was um, after King's passing was really pushed by his wife, Coretta Scott King, um, as she began to focus on achieving full employment through a job guarantee. When the legislation was first drafted, it included a job guarantee. And unfortunately, that was stripped from later versions of the legislation, um, including the one that finally passed. I love how you gave a sort of in that rhetorical stream of questions you were asking, lots of benefit of the doubt to someone who would be asking from the equality of opportunity standpoint, where you're like, okay, let's look at black unemployment rates versus white unemployment rates. And then now let's look at it from a perspective of those with college degrees, maybe with STEM degrees. And in all of those cases, you see a failure of meeting that standard of equality of opportunity. So then we bring in the solution, which in this case, um, I guess under the discussion of the resolution about the federal jobs guarantee, perhaps we can maybe solve for that by attempting to provide equality of outcome. Is that a fair analysis of what of what you were saying? Yeah, it is. I, I, I mean, I think we need to be careful here because a lot of the times the, you know, both President Johnson and President Kennedy really focused on this idea of equality of opportunity rather than thinking more about equality of outcome. And, you know, Ken, Kennedy's famous line, line, a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, how I wish that was true but we've had decades of research to show that, in fact, that that's not necessarily true. And what we should be pivoting towards today is, is some semblance of equality of outcome, particularly in setting a basic 
floor in the market so that everybody has their basic needs met. I mean, I think if you talk to most Americans, it's not a left or right issue. People agree that everybody who wants to work should be able to find a job. And I even was so crazy enough to go on Tucker Carlson's show one day and debate him on this topic. And even he agreed that, yeah, you know, everybody should, if you want to work, you should be able to find a job, right? It's just not a contentious question. Um, yet, um, never in the history of the United States has that occurred with the exception of three years during World War II. From 1945 through 1947, we had three years where unemployment averaged 1.7%. Okay. Um, those 1.7% of workers were basically workers transitioning, you know, from one job to another job. Um, but basically everybody had a job and we actually had a shortage of workers. Um, today, economists, uh, unfortunately define quote unquote full employment as an average of five to six percent, um, of workers. That's leaving tens of millions of Americans unemployed. For absolutely no reason, in my opinion. Um, so we do need to kind of challenge um, a lot of our priors and, and and rethink how we're we're talking about these things. So yeah, you did a great job highlighting that. So thank you. That's really interesting about establishing the floor because in in that case, like by implementing this program, everybody's got the same starting place, but that's an actual fair starting place because where the people who are pushing the idea, like you said, of um, equality of opportunity and the rising tide lifts all boats are assuming that we have already reached that standard of a fair starting place. If I'm if I'm speaking correctly, but if we can if we can implement a policy that actually establishes that fairly, then you're thinking that we could see a lot of benefit from that. And that's an, and that previous narrative was an incorrect one. Exactly, exactly. We're just we're filling gaps in our our you know kind of plugging holes in our sinking ship that is our society right. and and. Um, you know, this is perhaps the biggest, biggest gap to fill that I see. And, and also I know, um, Josh is going to go on and ask sort of like to, to elaborate on that a little bit. Um, and this is an idea that I, I think we're going to get into a little bit later in the discussion as well, but I wanted to ask you for a good working definition, um, before we started talking about these things of the Keynesian approach to economics, because we talk about it a lot on the show and right now. We sort of regard it as the opposite of the Austrian school of economics, but I want I want sort of like a little bit deeper of an understanding of that before we go into the specifics of a federal job guarantee. That is a, a huge and challenging question. Uh, so b- before I answer it, let me make a, a plug. If you you all haven't had a chance to check it out, my, my dear friend, uh, Zach Carter, just wrote an amazing book, The Price of Peace, which is a, a new biography of Keynes. And I can't recommend it enough. Um, it's it's a New York Times bestseller already. Um, it's incredibly accessible and it's absolutely masterfully written and provides not only a, a brilliant introduction to Keynes as a, as a person, but also his economic theories um, and provides um, excellent historical context through which we can understand Keynes's writings. You know, anybody can go try to read Keynes and let me tell you, it's hard. <laughs> Um, and and uh, Zach does a great job situating Keynes. So, you know, Keynes was, I think, really the last great economist that we've seen. Keynes was a, a interdisciplinary thinker. He cared deeply about psychology. He cared deeply about economics. He cared deeply about history. And he thought tremendously about philosophy. Um, he was not, as we think of today, a, a standard economist that, you know, 
builds an econometric model and tries to figure out answering this very narrow question using data. No, Keynes was Keynes was focused on understanding how to build the good life. Um, his I'm paraphrasing him slightly, but you know what what Keynes thought. Um, what Keynes asked, um, and actually quote, is what we need is a form of society which shall be ethically tolerable and economically not intolerable. And that was really what, what was at the center of Keynes's thinking. And, you know, what he did was kind of use that, I think, to drive his understanding of the economic system. Now, you know, Keynesian economics is, is really, um, was the precursor to what we call modern macroeconomics. Before Keynes, macroeconomics simply didn't exist. Um, we had had what's called the marginalist revolution, and 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 by and large, most of economics was called micro-founded. We started at the individual and we built up. Keynes said, no, 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 we're, we're not necessarily, you know, individuals operating in isolation, as some would imagine, Robinson Crusoe on the shipwrecked island all by themselves. And and asking, well, what should this person on the shipwrecked island produce? No, we're all born into a society um, and we're, we're creatures of that society. And in order to understand the economy, we need to start with society and then um, drill down. And so, you know, Keynes' basic uh, proposition was that there is a great deal of uncertainty in the economy, that on its own, the economy is unable to um, work towards that um, ethically tolerable society that he was seeking, where he, he believed everybody should be able to live the good life. Keynes went so far as to write an essay um, called The Economics of, um, uh, the, I believe it was called The Economics of My Grandchildren, where he argued, and in, in by, by today, we'd all be working 15 hours a week, that the society would be so rich that we'd be able to reduce work hours. And unfortunately, that's not the case. I wish he was right. Um, but But Keynes, you know, thought that because he understood how the economy would continue to grow and develop. And in that part, he was quite right about it. But in order for the economy to continue to grow and develop, Keynes believed that it needed um, a significant manager. Um, it, we needed some degree of planning. And that degree of planning largely came in the form of, of government um, structuring of the market and government um, uh, kind of particularly uh, uh, altering the market during economic crises. And Keynes believed that economic crises were, were um, a fundamental part of capitalism. Uh, he thought that these were largely unavoidable, but it was the job of the government to, to make them more tolerable, to, to ease the crisis. And keep in mind, Keynes largely writing during the Great Depression era, um, as well as during both World War I and World War II. And Keynes was trying to figure out how is it that we can utilize the economy to produce these social goods, um, whether it's sufficient housing or at the time when he was working for the British government, how do we produce enough warplanes and ships and uh, other military equipment to survive as a nation? Um, but, but he was also, you know, focused on, on trying to figure out how is it that we, we kind of harness those economic cycles of booms and busts. Um, and that's where you get this idea of Keynesian, um, fiscal stimulus. So the notion that, you know, during economic downturns, the government should step in and, and um, prime the pump, spend significant sums of money in order to put people back to work. Sound familiar? The job guarantee. What does it do? It puts people back to work. Keynes thought unemployment was one of the most stupid 
things that could ever exist in a society. Um, Joan Robinson, a contemporary and friend of his, you know, wrote um, in a review piece of Keynes after he had passed that, you know, he thought unemployment was stupid because it was purely wasteful of human talent. Um, and I think he was he was quite right on that. Um, but but, you know, it, it, to, to wrap up, you know, Keynes was really focused on on studying society as a whole and integrating, you know, philosophy and um, other schools of thought into economics to understand how is it that we deliver the good life for people. And a key aspect of that for Keynes was indeed a march towards what we think of today as socialism. Um, through, you know, ensuring that government played a larger role in the economy, both in managing investments to ensure that we're investing in things that that actually improve human well-being rather than just improve profits, and managing investments to provide permanent full employment where people who want work can can find sufficient work. Um, and and that was really central to to Keynes's policy work throughout his career. That was a marvelous summary of a lot of complexity i mean like i i've read a tiny bit of Keynes and a little bit about Keynes and heard lots of people rant against Keynes. uh so i really appreciate you kind of giving us a a, a sympathetic but nuanced understanding of kind of what we needed that going for yeah i think that, that was like a splash of cold water really nice it's a great oh. yeah that was a great summary well Mark, let me ask you a couple of devil's advocate questions, uh, mostly not because I'm trying to shred the idea, but mostly because I want to be the uh, uh, play Socrates and be the gadfly that provokes a, an answer that, that I think our, our listeners need for their cases. Um, is the United States federal government able to provide real jobs? By real jobs, I mean uh, I, I, jobs that are substantive, where the work that is done is somehow meeting a felt need. That a a job that a a free market, a, a more of a free market approach would say there is some sort of demand for this, and the 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 supply is the labor that is being offered, and so on. Uh, but that is the government able to provide those? That's a great question. So. Today we seem to have have historical amnesia. You know, I think we have a hard time remembering the government doing big important things. And yet we see those things all around us. I'm an avid backpacker as an example. I love hiking. Um, and one of the things that I frequently see on my hikes are trails, cabins, bridges, and small dams built by the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was actually a direct employment program, some form, you know, kind of a targeted job guarantee that was that was part of the New Deal under uh, Roosevelt administration. And we can ask, did, did those people do meaningful things? They built national parks all over the world. Millions of Americans go to national parks every year, especially right now. Uh, people are increasingly, you know, learning to enjoy their outdoor time and, and thankfully have have some time to go outside and enjoy nature. Millions of people went to work, three and a half million people under the civilian works, I'm sorry, the Civilian Conservation Corps to improve our, our natural landscapes across this country and to bring that beauty, make that beauty of, uh, of the United States accessible through trails, through cabins and the like. I think that those are pretty vital, important jobs. Today, um, I just wrote a piece uh, two weeks ago in The Hill with a friend of mine, Zeke Hausfather, who's a climate scientist at, at Berkeley. Um, and we 
called for reviving the Civilian Conservation Corps, which again, is you could think of as a portion of the job guarantee. Um, and what could those people do? Well, first of all, they could help uh, clear brush and manage our forests, which are currently burning, not only in California, but also in Colorado, which is right now in the midst of the largest wildfire the state has ever seen. Though, you know, we could put literally millions of youth to work right now, helping to improve our natural landscapes. I asked my students, how many of you would, would sign up for a CCC uh, today, take a year off before you go into the workforce or take a year off during college or, or um, you know, maybe maybe in your case, Ethan, take a year off before you go to college to go work in a service program that, that paid you a decent wage, but provided you with a meaningful opportunity to give back to society and to contribute to society. Um, and, you know, most of my students, their hands just shoot up. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Talk to park rangers all across the country. There's plenty of work to be done. It's just that they don't have the, the finances. They don't have the, the workers to be able to do it. That's just one small example. I mean, a, a second and related example is uh, people, people are increasingly waking up to the fact that the climate crisis isn't about our great-grandchildren. It isn't just about polar bears, which we should certainly work to protect, but it's also about us here and now. Um, you know, the, the climate crisis is, is not something in the far future. It's something that we're dealing with today. Our planet's already warmed by 1.1 degrees Celsius. Um, our seas have already started to rise. Ice is already failing to form. Climate change is already contributing to, to major heat waves that are responsible for killing thousands of Americans a year and fires that are unfortunately killing hundreds more. We can put people to work decarbonizing every school in America, decarbonizing every building in America, you know, um, planting. I, I live in Florida right now. Uh, replant, replanting and, and helping maintain wetlands, um, which are a vital, um, uh, vital natural asset that helps sequester massive amounts of carbon. But unfortunately, we cut most of them down in order to build housing right on the coast. There's no shortage of socially useful things to do. I always challenge people, walk outside your door, walk around your neighborhood, talk to your loved ones. Are there things that the government could be doing to improve their lives, whether that's building sidewalks, planting trees, insulating their homes, providing after-school arts programs or sports programs or elder care or having teaching, teaching aids in your schools? Of course there are. There's no shortage of useful things to be done. The problem here is I think that we have a failed imagination more than anything else. We forget that the government used to do big, bold things that improved our lives. Today, when people think about the government, unfortunately, they often just think about taxes. Well, you know, no, you know, the government does more than tax. The government, government fundamentally can change the way our societies function and the services were all delivered in ways that, you know, and can help reshape our, our life in ways that I think, you know, uh, all, all of us would, would benefit from tremendously. And that's not to say it'd be easy. Um, and, and I mean, but, but just one example, back in the height of the Great Depression, when Roosevelt took office, um, Roosevelt created the precursor to the Work Progress Administration, which was the major um, employment um, program that most of us are familiar with today. The precursor was called the Civilians Work Administration. He put 8% of the U.S. workforce to work in two months. 
imagine if a Biden administration could come in and put 8% of America's Americans to work in two months. Um, if they could do it in 33, why can't they do it today? I, I promise you things are a little bit easier with modern internet and computer programs to figure out how to match people with jobs and where to send them and what to do. Um, you know, we have all this better technology. Uh, I, I'd like to think that, you know, we can at least match what we did in the 30s, if not significantly uh, exceed those programs. Let's talk a little bit about some of what would be necessary in order to bring this about. Um, I was looking, uh, I think I mentioned earlier the uh, the title, but I looked at a, a study you were, you uh, co-authored, the Federal Jobs Guarantee, a Policy to Achieve Permanent Full Employment. And that study walked through quite a few kind of specific concrete details. I, I wonder if you could help us with, like, let's say that uh, in a magic fiat kind of way that the, uh, the debate world lives in, uh, the affirmative gets to pretty much assert that the government can do whatever I say it's going to do. And it just poof, we're all going to assume that it will work. Um, so if, if that could happen, like if, if you could establish a, uh, I don't remember what the NIEC uh, acronym stood for in there, but if you could establish this kind of federal jobs guarantee and a federal organization to oversee it, um, what specifically would it cost or what would it take to do it in terms of manpower, cost, funding mechanisms, time frame? What would all of that look like if you were going to kind of outline a very specific plan to put this into practice? Sure, sure. So, um, just to back up this, uh, you know, a lot of this work is based with my two co-authors, uh, William Darity Jr., who's at Duke University, and Derek Hamilton, who's at the New School in New York City. Um, and, you know, together with, with them, we've written a number of papers on the idea of a job guarantee. And, and you know, what we call it is a National Investment Employment Corps, the NEIC, which which we mentioned. Um and <clears throat> there's actually already legislation in Congress to do just this. There's, there's actually multiple different pieces of legislation in the House. Um, there was what was called H.R. 1000 um, that was um, introduced for over a decade by now the late uh, Representative John Conyers. And in the Senate, there's legislation under Senator Cory Booker uh, to enact a job guarantee. So we've actually worked with, with these members of Congress to draft up legislation. So you know, things are largely ready to go. Now, what would it look like? To start, um, a job guarantee would provide Americans, um, sorry, I should rephrase, a job guarantee would provide people residing in the United States with a job at non-property wages to do socially meaningful work. So this now, would be accessible to all people living in America, regardless of citizenship status, if I understand what you just shifted to. And in my world, absolutely. Yes, yes. You're, yes. you're 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 dreaming this up. You're 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 yeah. the engineer here. Absolutely, yes. Um, so you know, a job guarantee would be accessible to all people over the age of eighteen. Um, we could per perhaps think about you know what what type of complementary youth program could be built and what that might look like, but it'd be accessible to all people over the age of eighteen. It would provide them a job um, that was sufficient to to you know supersede uh, the poverty line by providing them at least $25,000 a year plus full benefits, right? When you think about um, income, we don't just want to think about how much money you get paid per hour. We also want to think about, well, do you have to pay for health insurance all of a sudden? And do you get vacation? And you know, what are the other things you get? So provide them with benefits. Um, and the program would be administered and housed under the Department of Labor. 
And I, you know, in our vision of the program, it would um, put people to work um, uh, in agencies, uh, in government agencies, um, as well as um, you know, states could um, prov- could you know write up. Okay, these are the the different things we would like to have done in our region, whether it's you know decarbonizing schools and libraries, or maybe the focus in that state is going to be to uh, do a wetland restoration program to start, or you know maybe the focus is going to be that they really need to repair some roads and bridges. I mean, the uh, Civil American uh, Society of Civil Engineers gave us a D minus on our current infrastructure here in the United States. Again, no, no shortage of work to be done. Um, and so through that program, um, the funds would be provided from the federal government to put these people to work um, in every state and in every congressional district across the country. Um, and you know there would be different mechanisms to ensure that the, the program functions smoothly um, as there was during the Work Progress Administration. So you know we'll have will have programs to, you know, um, investigate that funds are being used appropriately as under the New Deal, there was multiple different direct employment uh, programs and there was always an investigative agency to ensure that, you know, funds were used appropriately, people were doing the jobs. And we put these people to work in schools, we put them to work in nursing homes, we put them to work, um, you know, in our park services and and you name it. Um, And in terms of, you know, what the program costs, um, you know, it, I'll say it's, it's a little bit hard to say because it depends right when that program would be enacted. The interesting thing about a job guarantee is it's what's called an automatic stabilizer, which is a feature. Now, what does that mean? It means that during economic booms, you can think about, um, you know, the months p- right before the COVID pandemic broke out where we had near historic low unemployment, the lowest unemployment rate we had seen since my mother was born, okay? There was a very few workers that would have needed a job guarantee. So, you know, in fact, that the program would would be, um, you know, require relatively minimal fiscal outlays from the federal government. Only a couple million workers at the time were unemployed. On the flip side, today, we're, you know, looking at roughly 25 million workers or more that would be in need of a job. Now, <clears throat> what does it actually, you know, cost per job? We estimate um, the average cost per job is roughly fifty-five thousand um, dollars per job. Why? Because not only do you have to pay the workers, you have to provide the workers with benefits, and there are things called payroll taxes. And you also have to provide the workers with the resources they need to do their job. Maybe that means you need to, you know, buy tools to. Um, you know, retrofit buildings. Maybe that means you need to buy school equipment for an additional teacher's aid. Maybe that means you need to buy, you know, paints and paintbrushes for artists who are going to create new public uh, murals and, and other forms of art. You name it. Um, so, so there will be, you know, a, a significant cost associated with providing workers with the, you know, the appropriate tools to, to do their job. Um, you know, to put it in perspective, during the peak of the Great Recession, the we estimate in our in our paper that the financial outlay is necessary um, for uh, this program to meet the need would have been about one point two um, trillion dollars significant significant amounts of money okay that's roughly you know it's it's funny money what does that actually mean right um, that's roughly five percent of GDP now Keynes 
famously said, anything we can actually do, we can afford. Keynes was right. When we think about this idea of how do we pay for things, right? This is kind of the the favorite uh, quintessential question that comes up in Washington. We need to separate that out and ask two different, you know, there's kind of two different things confounded within that question. The first question is where do we actually get the resources to do that thing? So in this case, where do we actually get the workers, right? Well, the workers are coming to the program, so that takes care of that. And, and, you know, we need to make sure that we get resources, whether they be, you know, some of these workers are going to need childcare, of course. Some of these workers are, again, again, need different, different tools, um, in order to do their jobs, you know, so there's going to be a large amount of government procurement to provide them with the tools they need to do their jobs well. The other part of the question is actually, where do you, where do you finance it, right? Where do you actually get the dollars? And let me just say that the government as a sovereign nation cannot go bankrupt. This is something that, you know, the, virtually all economists agree on. Sovereign sovereign nation simply cannot go bankrupt. Now, you know, wh- what does that actually look like? Well, these workers are going to be put to work to actually produce productive things in our society. What these workers are, are not actually, you know, we don't actually save money by having these workers sitting on the sidelines. In fact, sitting on the sidelines, as Keynes highlighted, is tremendously wasteful. If we can put these workers to work to do socially useful things, what that actually does is will increase economic growth. In effect, the program, at least in part, finances itself because these workers are producing things of value. Society. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, okay, but again, where do you get the dollars? Where do the dollars come from? Come on, talk about the money. Right now, the federal government can borrow at essentially all historic all time lows. Now, interest rates on government treasuries, on government debt, is under 1%. Okay? It's under 1%. You can go look it up on any you know, Wall Street Journal, you name it. The economy on average, is growing significantly faster than that. If your economy is growing faster than the interest rate on your debt, the what we call the debt-to-GDP ratio, in other words, how much debt you hold in relation to the size of your economy, will, by definition, stabilize at some point. It cannot, it cannot grow exponentially. Mathematically, it just can't. So is it true that such a program might increase the federal debt, at least in the the short to medium term? Certainly. Is the federal debt anything that we or future generations should be concerned about? Absolutely not. The only thing, the only debt that I think that people should be concerned about is the ecological debt that we are leaving future generations. In terms of the actual national debt, it is the least of our concerns. And in fact, running a larger national debt right now, spending money is precisely what the economy needs. If you, again, going back to Keynes, thinking about the largest problem our economy faces right now is what Keynes calls a shortfall in aggregate demand. It's the fact that there's not enough people out there spending money to put everybody to work. Well, if you create a federal job guarantee program and you start paying those workers, what are they going to do? They're going to spend the money. They're going to pay their landlord. They're going to buy a new car. 
They're going <clears> to, <throat> you know, uh, they're, they're going to buy clothes. They're going to buy food. They're going to buy other necessities. And what does that do? It creates what we call a multiplier effect, and it creates more jobs, which actually in turn reduces the need for the program in the first place. Um, so is this a big program? Yeah. Is it, um, does it require significant financial outlays? You bet. Are there other ways to offset those financial outlays? If that is the concern, no question. And we can talk about that too. But as a matter of fact, what we want right now is for the government to be spending significantly more money and to be deficit financing. That, that is precisely how we prime the pump, which we talked about earlier, and bring the economy back to full speed. Because right now, it's barely moving and it's barely crawling. Sorry, so, I know that was a I, lot to unload at y'all. That was a lot. No, 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 absolutely. This, this was so valuable. I don't, I don't think you understand like how how great that entire thing was because. If it, if it isn't clear by the questions we're asking already, this sort of worldview and this outlook on economics is very new to us. And it's so great to get it, to, yeah, I guess, I, outlined, I, you could say, by someone who's done their research and is used to explaining it. And I, I really want to get your thoughts on um, how this compares to the UBI, just as a quick sort of side note. Um, is it How is it different from U, UBI? Because I guess like when you have a universal basic income, you're still giving people money and then perhaps you could create the multiplier effect by allowing that money to be spent. Um, and I guess, but with the federal jobs guarantee, you're giving them the job, which gives them the money, which allows them to spend it. So I guess like really quickly is which one would you say is better and why? I'm going to reject the premise of your question, although it's a really good question. I okay. don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, King, King, Martin Luther King wrote exactly on this talked about how we should provide a job at non-poverty wages for everybody who's willing and able to work and an income to, to provide digni a dignified life for everybody else. And I think that's exactly right. So what does that look like in reality? In my opinion, that looks like a job guarantee coupled with something that we call a negative income tax, which is a form of a universal basic income. It's, you know, nobody, no, nobody living in the United States should have under, you know, X dollars. We can, you know, argue over that that should be 20,000, 25,000, you know, you, you name the number X dollars. Um, you know, maybe they earn, you know, $10,000 a year by working part time. Well, then the government will top that off. We already do that through what's called the earned income tax credit. It's the largest poverty relief program in the United States right now, hugely popular across um, the bipartisan divide, as is the notion of a negative income tax actually it was introduced by multiple presidents, including Nixon, a Republican. <clears throat> and was long championed by by Milton Friedman, a um, conservative icon. Now, um, so so I think that to provide kind of true universal security, we do need both because there's some people that shouldn't be working, um, whether it be the elderly, the young, um, so, you know, the infirmed. Um, although, you know, I do think it's also important to redefine who should and shouldn't be working a lot. You know, uh, dis disabled individuals, for instance have tremendously high unemployment rates. Yet um, in many instances, there are people that want to be working and want to be contributing to society and, and the government should be working on creating more pathways um, for them. So to, to just back up though and answer your other question, you know, what are the differences in terms of um, economic impact of these? Universal basic income, you know, pro provides cash in people's pockets. You can eradicate poverty through a universal basic income. And that is, that is factually true. Um, but 
I'd also go back to saying, you know, we live in society and, and we as a society have a tremendous amount of work to be done, whether, you know, whether that's trying to mitigate um, climate change, whether that's providing better um, child care and elder care, or whether that's, you know, doing any other, nor, um, you know, uh, any other number of things that are important. Um, there, there's a lot of work to be done. So why wouldn't we want to harness those workers to, to actually produce, which, as I mentioned earlier, would actually increase the productive capacity of the economy and would have a less inflationary effect than a basic income would have, for instance. Not that that's a primary concern of mine with a basic income. Oh, Mark, I, I really appreciate what you brought to us uh, in this discussion tonight, because uh, as, as, as I assume, uh, my questions are probably made relatively clear. And if uh, my facial expressions, as you have been uh, describing this, have made eminently clear, and anyone listening to our show knows already, um, my views on economics are pretty pretty consistently conservative. Um, I think Ethan got the phrase Austrian economics from a colleague of mine, Tyler Bonin, and, and from me occasionally. Uh, I absorbed what little economic theory I know from uh, osmosis at Hillsdale College, which prides itself on being squarely on the Austrian side of things. Uh, so that the perspective that you're bringing to us tonight is not usually kind of where we tackle economic issues on the show. So I really appreciate you bringing that expertise. Uh, I think you've given us a great uh, framework to consider the affirmative side on this resolution and to really look at what kind of mindset can the affirmative bring. Because part of what I suspect a lot of people want to uh, bring, they'll want to go for sort of a plan-based approach to putting this actually into effect. And they'll want to, they may want to take your article. I thought there was one paragraph that just laid it out exactly like a policy debate plan, where it laid out the agency, the time frame, the funding, it was all in a single paragraph. Um, but I think you also give us the, the biggest piece that I think uh, the NEG will be attacking um, I really see two strong counterattacks. And the first one you've already deflected almost perfectly uh, is the funding question and the and what happens with tax increases. But if you tackle this from the lens of the Keynesian approach that you've given us tonight, uh, that really deflects that attack on the on the argument. Um, the other one that I just would uh, ask one uh, last brief question, see what you think about this. Uh, you, you mentioned particularly elder care and um, teacher aides in schools as one of those. I have several friends who work in uh, nursing homes. And then uh, from the school perspective, I think these are pretty similar in the sense that both of those are areas that often are... I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to say that you're doing this, but I think there's a perception that uh, sometimes schools are placed, people who are not actually tied to education tend to think that K-12 is sort of like what you do if you can't do something else. And so they think it's low skilled. And then people think of actually caring for the physical needs of infirm people as something similar. Like, of course, anyone can change out bedpans. In reality, neither of those conceptions are true. I mean, it takes an immense amount of training and preparation to go into either of those fields. So what would you say to somebody who looks at this and says, okay, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of training to become an accurate forester. It takes a lot of prior work to be able to figure out we're going to, someone has to map the trail. Someone else has to train people when using machetes and, and then you got to get all the labor and I, uh, there, there's all these logistics, but the skill side of this uh, and I, I know we're running short on time. So just briefly, what would you say to somebody who really wanted to focus on the fact that a federal jobs guarantee seems to fall flat 
on the skilled versus unskilled labor front? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. I'm really glad you brought that up. So you know, the, the first thing I would say is that, is that these are skilled jobs. And I think that it's really important to recognize that teaching, teaching aides, nursing, nursing aides, child care workers, these are all highly skilled jobs. I wish in the United States we took the approach to education that, you know, countries like Finland did, where teachers are held in the same regard as doctors and lawyers um, and other, and other kind of um, top tier professions that we traditionally idolize in society. I, I, I think that we need to work towards that. Now, that to me, though, doesn't necessarily say that workers who are coming into a job guarantee will either be unprepared or poorly skilled or unable, most importantly, to acquire those skills through the program. Historically, um, for the past few decades, Democrats have really focused on job training as the way to kind of bridge the unemployment crisis. And we've seen that to be utter as an utter failure. What we did in World War II and what companies used to do really up through up until about the early 1990s was train hire workers that they believed in and then train them on the job. And that's exactly what I think needs to be the perspective under the job guarantee. Absolutely, these workers are going to need some additional training. But you know what? They should be paid during that training. That training should occur on the job. That will be part of integrating them fully into the program. Um, and that just means that, you know, a worker is not going to go from zero to 100 and be as effective as as other workers that have been doing for doing that for multiple years. But you know, you're the dean of students. You see new teachers come on board. You know that they need a helping hand, not for a month or a week, but for often years until they really get fully integrated. You know, these are highly skilled jobs. So I do think that that we shouldn't downplay um, that fact. Now, the, the one other thing I want to note is that a job guarantee is no silver bullet. Will it eliminate unemployment? Yes. Will it fix all the problems? Absolutely not. And is it a, to a degree, a blunt force tool? Definitely. In order to address some of the, the issues you brought up, I think we need, again, what Keynes said is an increasing socialization of investment. In other words, you, if you grow the public workforce significantly, that workforce is less uh, it is more resistant to economic shocks. So you actually have less unemployed workers in general that would be needing the program. But you actually are providing more and more of these vital public services in the first place. Um, so not only are you reducing the need for the program, <coughs> but um, you know, you're 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 basically complementing the program where then the you know the workers that do come into this program can be put in more temporary roles. Um, and, you know, and then transition back into the primary workforce. So, so I, I, I don't, I think it's important that we view this program not in isolation, but as part of a larger concentrated effort to increasingly socialize investment and stabilize the economy and take it and more and more of the economy out of the boom and bust cycle, which is, which, you know, certainly in, in my opinion can be done. But, but I appreciate you also, uh, meant to mentioning your, your, um, of alternative economic training to mine, where I was trained at University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is kind of a premier, what's called heterodox economics program, kind of a um, Keynesian Marxist school that is about as polar opposite as it gets from the Austrian school. Um, and, and, you know, um, for a, 
you know, a deeper dive on, on Keynes. I, like I said, I'd read price a piece. If you're interested in how all these different ideas fit together a little bit, uh, Quinn Slobidian has this amazing book called Globalists that talks about the different, um, the Austrian school as well as different schools of thought traditionally associated with neoliberalism and kind of how they came to power and, and what their intellectual journeys were that uh, provides some really excellent, excellent background. Um, for thinking just about these different schools of thought. Because economics, you know, a lot of people like to claim economics is a science. It's not. It's a social science. There's a lot of disagreement. Philosophy is heavily at play here and really changes and shapes our, our economic perspectives, which do diverge quite a bit across the discipline. Well, that's certainly true. And I think as, as, as you've been describing this, it seems to me that the perspective that you're coming from is perfect for the affirmative argumentation position. I mean that really the the looking at uh, and honestly uh, as as much as in the real world I would I I I cannot imagine ever actually affirming this idea but in the terms for the debate world the uh, the imaginative space that you were calling us to uh, to with uh, thinking about a big government that is undertaking a bold underpinning and is looking to create social benefit. Uh, it almost um, I I hope you've seen uh, have you ever seen the TV show Parks and Rec. I have, but I haven't watched much of it. Okay, it, it almost like uh, Leslie Nope is is the person that was coming to mind when you were describing that because she has this constant attitude that uh, I have yet to meet any local, city, or state level government employee who is actually as competent as Leslie Nope. I tend to meet very incompetent state employees, but that that just may be my luck of the draw. But in the TV show, Leslie Nope is always looking for how. Uh, the government can like literally make people in Pawnee, Indiana, make their lives just a little bit better. And it's all about her literally creating a tiny little park. And it takes her seven years to create a tiny little park, but it makes the town a little bit better. And I, I think you've given us a, a great uh, kind of way to articulate that on, on the app. Um, and just if anybody is listening for Neg and is curious at all about the 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 uh, polar opposite side on economics, I'll mention three quick names that uh, may be worth looking up uh, and finding short writings from each that could give you just a different perspective on uh, the notion of job creation and business cycle and investments and so on. The first of those would be uh, Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, he's kind of the, the originator of the Austrian school of thought. His big fat book is called Human Action. And he kind of he does not start where Keynes starts with looking at the whole. He starts instead with the individual and the individual's actions in collaboration with others to create economic value. So it's literally going to be the opposite of the uh, sort of the macroeconomic perspective uh, that Mark was talking about. For Mises, money is not so much about uh, something that we create to keep a cycle going. It's literally a measure of real value. So we don't create real value out of fiat. The value is created through human action. And we might use different ways to symbolize that value. But because the value is real, then we can only mess with the monetary supply so much before we've either surpassed the value or we've diminished it beyond what value actually exists. So Mises might be a great place to look at on the neg if you want to be able to respond to some of those macroeconomic kind of approaches behind the federal jobs guarantee. Uh, Friedrich Hayek and Harry Haslett are two other names I would toss in there. Uh, Hayek is great on individual liberty and individual responsibility. Harry Haslett and his uh, uh, 50 Lessons of Basic Economics 
uh, has uh, that's not the actual title. It's something like that. But he has a great intro to economics for anybody who's listening to this and is now like, what do I, I, I don't know. I, I'm a high school freshman and I, I just want to know more about this. Hazlitt might be a great, uh, great place to start. Uh, well, we are uh, pretty much out of time for this. Uh, Mark, uh, I do want to thank you for a great conversation and for bringing so much uh, learning and research to this episode tonight. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to follow your work and just know when you have a new publicly accessible article coming out and such things? Yeah, great. It's been a pleasure to speak with the two this evening. I've had a lot of fun and, and really appreciate your time. Um, you can find my work both at my website, which is Mark. Paul, P-A-U-L, econ, E-C-O-N, dot com. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I am at uh, Mark Vin, V-I-N, Paul. Um, and I, I look forward to, to hearing how things develop on your end. The other two names I throw out there on the nay side for contemporary writers that might be of interest for folks, Matt Brunig um, is a, a big blogger and been a uh, large opponent of the job guarantee and is you know very accessible to read his short blog pieces. Uh, he runs the People's Policy Project. The second one is Josh Bivens at the Economic Policy Institute wrote kind of a long form critique of the job guarantee. So those are two other places for, for folks to check out if they're if they're interested. Marvelous. Ethan, any final thoughts? I mean, that was that was a great conversation. I'm super glad that I got to learn about um sort of the, the Keynesian side of economics and how the federal job guarantee would work out. I think it was really cool to get a very well articulated view on that side of things. Um, so I'm super happy about the way this went and really glad and grateful that you came on for the conversation. So thank you. Thanks. And Josh, I and see you next time. Hopefully I'll fully, uh, fully convince you over to the yay side here. Ah, well, <laughs> that that yeah. would be quite the day. I have to be oh. there to see that. Well, hey. Uh, you might get me over there. Easy. You'd get me easy, over there way easier than you would him. Uh, if you uh, if you ever wanted to come back and uh, do a totally different kind of episode, we could. Uh, uh, Ethan could be our moderator. We could uh, pick a debate format, and uh, I'll I'll I'll. And honestly, I would have to read up on Austrian stuff to be able to do this. I I did a conference through the Acton Institute, or no, it was through Liberty Fund a couple years ago. But uh, have me actually read a bit more Hayek and a bit more of Mises. I'm. I'm going to another one in the spring that's going to be on the uh, the moral theories of Adam Smith that should help me pick up a little bit more Smith. But if you ever wanted to, like, we could pick a day and uh, both of us read something and then we could kind of like literally hash it out over a debate. I think it'd be I think that'd be really fun. As, uh, yeah. I, I was itching to reply, but I felt like that would be really rude to uh, like invite a guest on our show and then like be really petty and, and, and responding. So we should we should do a debate episode and we could uh, we could go for it. All in the name of healthy debate. That's it. That's it. All right. So if I hope y'all enjoyed the episode. I'm glad you tuned in to listen. If you made it all the way through, um, please feel free to reach out to us with some feedback, some comments on the episode, what you thought of it at what's the res at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at what's the res underscore or visit our website. That's www.whatstherez.com where we post all of our episodes for free. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.